last night. If you were watching the news, you probably saw a clip from the war in the Ukraine where a big column of tanks are coming down the road and armored personnel carriers and they get to an intersection of another highway. And that was a critical juncture where they could be stopped or they might go ahead to where they were headed to destroy some piece of property and what have you. Oftentimes there's a intersection in the life, the road of life for believers. And they come, as they read in their Bible, they come to a section where they began to read and try and understand the sovereignty of God and man's salvation. And then they read on a little bit further in a different book and they began to see or read a passage that seems to them to indicate that man is in control of his salvation and makes choices all on his own. And as we try to weigh those two things out, we come to an intersection in our faith. How can both of those things be true? That God is sovereign in man's salvation, but also man is required to have faith, believe, and repent. How do you balance those things out? If you don't balance them out correctly, you can go off into all kinds of ditches on one side of that highway or the other. So today, hopefully, we'll be able to some extent, maybe for someone here today, we will navigate that intersection successfully. You'll notice on your handout that there is two other sections mentioned from before, or one other section mentioned from another session before we get to our part. And that's because it's the intersection, you might say, of these two things that answer the question. When you look at one by itself or the other by itself, you'll end up in the wrong place, I do believe. But these two are where the intersection occurs. So you read along with me about, first of all, the fall of man. We believe that man was created in holiness under the law of his maker, but by voluntary transgression fell from that happy and holy state in consequence of which, the consequences, it says, of which all mankind are now sinners, not by constraint, but by choice. Being utterly void of that holiness required by the law of God and positively inclined to evil and therefore under just condemnation to eternal ruin without defense or excuse. You cannot say the devil made me do it. BMA doctrinal statement lists it under the category of the depravity of man. That part's looking about the fall itself, but what were the conditions or the result? We know man has fallen. We know that he is utterly void of any holiness and he's positively inclined toward evil. Some people have the notion that mankind is just one way or the other it's all up to his will and all where he goes back and forth. Sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad, depending on where we were raised, the community we we're brought up in, our genetic makeup and all those kinds of things. But what it's telling us here and in this next section, we're not like that. We confuse oftentimes the free agency of man and the free will of man. Man somewhat like a compass and you set it there 
But what happens if that compass needle is not magnetically charged? It'll just go round and round. It ends up wherever it wants to. But a proper compass, what does it do every time you spin it? What does it do? It goes back to north. Mankind is like that compass that's uncharged, you might say. We could choose just about anything we want. We're free moral agents. But mankind in his fallen state, he's a free moral agent, but he does not have a free will. His will is controlled by his nature. What is his nature? The Bible says here your nature is to be that of a sinner. How do I know that? Well, I experienced it myself, but... Jeremiah says, the heart of man is what? Desperately wicked. It lies to us. Deceitful above all things. Your emotions lie to you constantly. They're under control of wickedness, your flesh. Who can know it? That's how bad off your affections are. Then it goes on to say in the book of Romans that the carnal mind, the mind you're born with, your intellect is what? The enemy of God. And is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. Writer 1 Corinthians, Paul said, the natural man does not receive the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. Now that's our condition with our will that is controlled by our evil nature. It goes on, explains a little more, again about depravity in the BMA statement, the idea of the consequences or the inability that comes from that fallen nature. So read along with me under depravity. Although man was created in the image of God, he fell through sin and the image was marred in his unregenerate state. Remember, he's dead in trespasses and sins. In his unregenerate state, he is void of spiritual life, is under the influence of the devil, and lacks any power to save himself. The sin nature is transmitted to every member of the human race, the man Jesus Christ alone being accepted. Because of the sin nature, man possesses no divine life. You notice again where it says no divine life, look up three or four lines, it says again, it's repeating, it's void of spiritual life. Just say it in another way. And he is essentially, you might say fundamentally, basically, and unchangeably depraved apart from the divine grace. Unchangeably depraved. What he's talking about there is the doctrine of inability. Inability to come to Christ in our natural state. So there you have one aspect of that intersection. When I get here, what am I to do? When I understand a little bit about my own nature, 
I began to understand that I will not come to Christ because of what? My heart is fallen. My mind is fallen. I have no divine spiritual life within me. I am dead in trespasses and sin. Now that is a desperate condition. And oftentimes we fall into error when we try to tell people you need to come to Christ and all you need to do is just try Jesus. Tried everything else make you happy and you need to try Jesus to make you happy. That's a fatal error. Biblical understanding is where we started off reading earlier today from the New Hampshire Confession of grace in regeneration. We believe that in order to be saved, sinners must be regenerated. Remember up there just above that in depravity, unregenerate state is our current state. Sinners must be regenerated or born again. Translate, in some translations, John, you'll see where it says born again. It'll say born from above. <clears throat> that regeneration, <clears throat> excuse me, consists in this, of giving a holy disposition to the mind. What is the disposition of the mind originally according to Paul in the book of Romans? The carnal mind is the enemy of God and will not submit itself to God. So regeneration gives us a new holy disposition to the mind and that it is affected or brought about in a manner above our comprehension. Nobody knows exactly how that it happens. It's beyond our comprehension just like the nature you might say of different the other doctrines in the Bible such as the Trinity. You can't explain it completely. That's beyond our comprehension. The writers of this document said this regeneration business beyond our comprehension for the most part. Why would they say that? Probably they were thinking about the passage we read from John. That the Holy Spirit when you're born again is going where it wants to go, when it wants to go and you can't perceive all that it's doing. You just see the results of it. It's affected in a means beyond our comprehension by the powerful reading of the scriptures and a powerful sermon and a tricky presentation of the gospel that makes you get up out of your seat and walk to the front. It's not quite what it says. It's brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you cannot generate it in somebody else and neither can I. All we can do is rely on the power of the Holy Spirit mixed alongside the ministry of the Word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? Under the power of the Holy Spirit. In connection, again it says here, with divine truth. That is the Bible. So as to secure 
our voluntary obedience to the gospel. Sometimes it's gotten to where it's humorous to me. But in the past it would sadden me but still here from one time to another. When people say, I just can't believe that somehow Jesus being a gentleman, that's an old soul winning book, that Jesus is a gentleman. He won't ever make you do anything you don't want to do. And Jesus would never come to you and just drag you to grace. He wouldn't cause you to be born again. It's all your choice along the way. But what have we read just in that passage earlier about man? Man left to his own will not choose to follow Christ. He will choose his sin every time. He will choose his rebellion every time. Just like a sufficient or efficient compass will point to the north every time. But he secures our voluntary obedience to the gospel. And we'll see that in just a moment. How that voluntary side of things seems to us when we begin to study. And it's proper evidence. What happens when you are born again? Are there evidences? Do we see some outward fruit coming along? And it's proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance and faith and newness of life. Now, fruit are the root, which is your will, what you do, repentance and faith. Is it the fruit of a new birth, a regeneration, or is it the root? Perhaps the most fatal error that I see in many Baptist doctrinal statements, thankfully not ours, is that they will say, in not so many words, they'll use almost this word, let me use this word, that the requisites, you might say in our day and time, we'd say the prerequisites, the prerequisites for a new life or being born again are repentance and faith. In other words, by the help being inched along a little bit, encouraged a little bit by other people in the Word and by preaching, there's enough of the divine life in you. There's enough of that holy nature still there. You're not really completely depraved. You're not really totally enabled of coming to Christ. Your mind is not completely the enemy of God. Your heart is not completely deceitful and corrupt. There's something there. And with a little help, you can believe. You can believe the unbelievable. You can believe that a man living 2,000 years ago, an ethnic Jew that was a carpenter, died on a cross, executed by the Roman government. And you can believe that God, out of his great mercy, put all of this, your sins on that man. But here comes the unbelievable part. Well, that's a little bit unbelievable in itself. We believe that. But when God says, I put all your sins on Christ, what does that say to a human, mankind point of view? Well, that's silly. I have to make my own way. 
everybody pays for their misdeeds one way or the other and whether or not you go to heaven you believe and believe there's heaven the way you get there is having more good things in your life than bad things so you go a little bit further and you say well that man died and he was buried for three days but then he came back to life that's unbelievable how many people do you know that have been in the grave three days and you actually saw them come back from the dead? It's never happened. And then you go on to say, and not too long after that, that man that came back from the grave, you know what else he did? He took off flying through the air. Went through the clouds to heaven. Somebody will say, you tell them that. The unregenerate person will say, you are an imbecile. You have lost your mind. You need to be locked up. But what happens? God works a miracle in our lives. And there's evidence. There's fruit. What is that fruit? Penance and faith. Can you believe the unbelievable? Can you make yourself believe that story? Even today, if you have believed that story, maybe years past, and you began to read some off-centered material, religious material. He began to talk to an evolutionist and they make some kind of reasonable, plausible argument to the contrary of what you believe. It might make you, hmm, i got to recenter myself for a second here. You can't have faith worked up of yourself. Repentance is on the other side. It's like a two-sided coin. You don't get one without the other. Repentance and faith are the product, the twin fruits, it says, not the twin roots of salvation. They're the twin fruits of regeneration. Like two sides of the same coin. You don't have one without the other. Repentance generally or most basically means you're going in a particular direction. You're following the whims of your life, your mind, and your affections and loves. And then something happens and you turn around and you go the other way. By necessity when you repent from one track of life and you repent and you turn, by necessity what have you done? Or by default, what have you done? You've started another trail of life. The other trail, the opposite of following after your will, is following after the will of Christ. That's true repentance. Now let's look down here at these other questions for just a minute and see how some of these things work together. How does the Spirit, question 29, apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ. What does it mean to be united to Christ? Well, that is something that is hard to conceive in the human mind. So God gives us a few illustrations. It says Jesus is the head and we are the what? The body, the parts. It says in another place that Jesus is the vine and we are the what? Branches. So two pictures in the scriptures tell us what it means to a degree to be united by Christ. He is my brother. 
He's my leader. He's my prophet, my priest, and my king. He's the prophet that teaches me by his Holy Spirit. He is the priest that takes all of my cares and mediates between me and the Heavenly Father and lives forever to make intercession for the saints. He is my king that I'm united to in that he conquers me and all my enemies to his glory cause of his grace. The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us. Back to Ephesians in chapter 2. After it tells us he's raised us up together, made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, united us in Christ, that in the age to come he might show his exceeding riches of his grace and of his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by faith are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The working of faith, Christ, gives us the gift of faith. He gives us, along with that gift of faith, gives us our salvation. Some people, when they don't understand the principle of interpretation or hermeneutics of looking at the whole context of things, they try to do some grammatical gymnastics and decide that somehow that faith wasn't a gift and grace takes his place. Had a man not long ago, educated man, tried to make that argument, he explained to me all the details of it. And I mentioned, I said, do you know that in 15 seconds with my telephone I can find twice as many that go the other way in their interpretation? He didn't know that. You look at the context, you realize the whole thing is a work of Christ, works, faith, and it is a gift of God. And it unites us in our effectual calling to Christ. Now, again, we're still talking about repentance and faith being the product of regeneration. What is this calling, this effectual or efficient calling of God that comes to us? Many people understand the idea of the general call of the gospel. That we see, oftentimes, when we get up to preach, Baptists, real Baptists, do not fall into the error of not giving an open and free invitation of the gospel when they preach. They get caught up in philosophical ideas about giving a true, honest invitation of the gospel. And that's a mistake. That's getting off in the ditch on one side, and then on the other side is not talking about it. So what is this effectual calling? How does it work? Not the general call that many, many people hear, but the effectual calling of Christ. The effectual calling of Christ is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery. The Holy Spirit, again, with the working of the Word being preached, he convinces us of our sin and misery. Goes beyond that and it's convincing. He enlightens our darkened mind in the knowledge of Christ. He begins to teach us, help us to understand. Goes beyond my carnal fallen mind. Goes beyond my deceitful heart. 
and changes them by regeneration and in that process he is convincing me of what? How badly I need Christ. And how wonderful and pure the love of Christ is. How perfect a sacrifice that he is. That that one man could take all the sins of all his people for all time and lay them on Christ. He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ. And he takes my fallen will, my will, that every decision that I make, even though I'm a free moral agent, every decision I make is captive to my fallen nature. And he takes my fallen will and renews it. He takes the power, just as if you could demagnetize a magnet and take its power away. The love and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ comes and takes away your love and giving over your will to sin and to the world and the flesh and the devil. That's what he does. He renews your will. He persuades and enables us. I was not able. I was persuaded the other way. But he persuades me and enables me to embrace Jesus Christ as my prophet, priest, and king as he's freely offered to me in the gospel. Now if you have that regeneration, you have the new life, you've been born from above, what happens? Well, that tells us in the next one. Do you believe that when you're truly born again, that Christ becomes your Lord? That was a big issue or discussion when I was going to seminary years ago. Lordship salvation. Does something really happen? Can you truly be born again, truly saved, having embraced Christ? Can you truly stay on that same track of your life, running away from God? I would say not. My youngest sister, 10 years younger than I am, when she was one or two years old, she could get mad and have a temper tantrum, and she would hold her breath till she turned absolutely blue and purple in the face. You ever seen a baby do that? A lot of us have. She'd do that to the point that she would get dizzy and her eyes would roll back in her head and she'd fall over. Do you know what happened the instant that she fell over? Starts to breathe again. Why is that? Her, she, in herself, she was able for a while to control the voluntary muscular system in her body. But you have, we also have an involuntary muscle system and nerves. And when you go into an unconscious state, the other side takes over and you can't help but breathe. That's what keeps us living to the very end. Repentance and faith, you might say, are the involuntary gifts of God when he gives us new life. We believe, it says, that repentance and faith are sacred duties. We have to do that. We know the Bible says that we have to believe. 
You know, it says we have to repent. But they are also inseparable graces. Inseparable gifts from God. That are wrought in our souls by the regenerating spirit of God. They are the twin fruits of regeneration, not the twin roots of regeneration. Whereby being deeply convinced of our sin, our guilt, danger and helplessness. Are you deeply, have you ever been deeply convinced of the consequences of your sins? You've ever been driven to your knees in the depths of the night realizing just how wicked and dark your soul was. That is a traumatic experience when you realize that no man seeks after God. They've all turned aside. And without the grace and mercy of God coming to you with an effectual calling, you would never ever come to Christ. Convinced of your helplessness, your inability to live correctly, your inability to repent, your inability to believe. But at the same time, you're deeply convinced of the way of salvation by Christ. We turn to God. What happens? We turn to God with unfeigned or fake and acting contrition or sorrowfulness in our hearts. A lot of people say that I repent or I won't repent and what they're wanting to repent of is the consequences of their sins. They're tired of the way they're living and the consequences and the heartache and all what their sins have brought into their life. And they want to turn from that. Here it's saying it's not, that's not what brings you to Christ. That might help along the way. It might push you to go to church what really comes about when you're really born again regenerated you have a sincere not fake contrition about your sins you look at yourself like the scriptures look at you you confess then and you make supplication for mercy you don't say Jesus I'm going to try you tried everything else again and now I think I'll try, I'll give you a chance. And I'll receive you. We say here in a minute, it re you receive Christ. But oftentimes when I hear presentations of the gospel, people being begged to come to Jesus and begged to try Jesus and begged to ask you to ask Jesus in your heart. A more accurate presentation, a real life presentation rather than receiving Jesus you ought to be on your knees going to him and asking him to receive you because he has no obligation to do it you ever looked at yourself that way I need to be, go crawling on my knees convinced of my sin and beg the Lord Jesus Christ to take me a lost forlorn helpless sinner we turn to God with unfeigned contrition and supplication for mercy and at the same time simultaneously two sides of the same coin heartily receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our prophet and priest and king and relying on him alone as our all 
only and all sufficient Savior. What is real repentance? Number 70. Not fake repentance. Not semi or feigned repentance. Repentance unto life. Notice the addition of the words unto life. Not superficial. Repentance unto life is a saving work that we contribute to our salvation. What is it? It is a saving gift of God whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God. Have you looked at your sins lately and your sin nature that still resides to some degree in your life? Have you looked at it? Have you looked at yourself and grieved and hated the sin nature in your life? That's what Jesus was saying when he said, you have to deny yourself. That's the true idea of denying yourself. You look at self and you hate self, the way you are without Christ. And real repentance, real regeneration brings that gift of repentance that causes us to hate our sins and turn from it with a real purpose, not to try Christ, give Him a chance, but full purpose to strive for new obedience to God. Not halfway, full. That's real repentance. What is real faith in Jesus Christ? Number 69. Faith, saving faith, is a saving grace. It's a gift. Real faith is a gift from God. Whereby we receive. The idea there is not just asking for a gift. The idea is welcoming. We welcome Him and rest on Him alone. Nothing else. Not a mixture of works and grace. Not a mixture of my repentance and my belief and my education. Resting. Not tentatively. Not taking a step. Maybe I'll go some more. Not having tried everything else and then trying Jesus. But resting on Him alone. For salvation from that horrible sin that rules and reigns in the past in my heart and in my mind as he set forth in the gospel not the way I want to see Jesus not the way the world presents Christ but I see him as he's presented in the gospel true and only all sufficient prophet priest and king of his sheep and of his kingdom regeneration you've fallen completely you can't get up you're unable to get up you need regeneration you don't need rehabilitation you need regeneration you need new life and he gives us that new life and when he gives us that new life we are not only just born again regenerated we turn to Christ with the true sense of our sin, repentance, and faith in Christ.
all of it a gift of God of his grace let's bow together for just a moment